The Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. I'm Dave Cornway, and you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We are recording this episode on May 16th, 2021, and I'm joined today, of course, as always, by our producer, Adam Rosenhart. Hey, Adam. How's it going, Dave? I'm doing, doing pretty good. How are you doing? I'm good. Uh, I wish the the listeners could see the uh, the room that you're sitting in includes some fabulous taxidermy. Yes, yes, I have a uh, uh, I think it's a white-tailed deer uh, um, with uh, uh, three points or six points. I'm not sure if you do you count the points on one or do you count them all. That's uh, that's how much of an outdoorsman I am right now. But but it's a it's a beautiful piece and uh, it's you know lurking over my shoulder. This is my my temporary uh, recording studio for today. Right, while you're getting your internet set up in your new place. That's right, yeah, yeah. Congratulations. Just, thank you, yeah, I just moved and I had to, uh, the reason why we didn't uh, record a podcast last week is I had to dig, or I had just moved and I packed all my podcast stuff up into a box and I did not know among the pot, the towers of unpacked boxes where exactly my uh, my podcasting recording equipment was. So I, I spent a week and I found it and we're back. And thankfully I found it because like holy smokes do we have a lot of stuff to talk about like what what a, what a, like i think just the past week in uh, in alberta politics uh we could do uh you know we could do five or six episodes but we're here to do here to do one awesome episode today and i'm thrilled today to have joining us for this conversation to talk about what the heck is going on in alberta politics um danny parody welcome back to the podcast danny is uh, contrib- contributing editor at canada land and co-editor of the rage against the municipal uh, newsletter. Uh, is that how you describe it, Danny? Yes. Uh, yeah. Great to be here with you and Bambi, Dave. Ah, uh, yes, <laughs> Bambi. Yeah. I think it's, I think his name is Fred. <laughs> and uh, also joining us is uh, Chris Henderson. Uh, Chris is the chief strategist and partner at Y Station Communications and Research. Uh, thanks for joining us today, Chris. No problem, Dave. I actually think that that's Bambi's mom. No, well, it no. has antlers, so it's probably not Bambi's mom. <laughs> well, whatever. Well. <laughs> I'm not much of a I'm not much of an outdoors person either. <laughs> a cowbull, you know. <laughs> cowbull, whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Deer. Yeah. Um yeah, moose. Uh so <laughs> <laughs> we're 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 gonna we're gonna look into we're gonna look into that. All of our outdoors uh outdoors uh uh outdoorsman type uh, listeners can uh, can send us in their corrections about what we uh, what we just got wrong. So guys Alberta politics. Um, I think, uh, you know, we've, we've had quite a bit happen in the past week. Um, uh, I guess we'll just <laughs> dive in and, and, uh, and talk about it. Um, the, there, there was a, a big blowout in the UCP caucus this week. Um, we had on, I think it was Wednesday or Thursday night. We had Todd Lowen, um, who was the, who's the ML, UCP MLA for central peace, Notley. Um, and the UCP caucus chair posted a letter of resignation on Facebook uh, that was not just a letter of resignation as UCP caucus chair, but a call for Premier Jason Kenney to resign, uh, to step down as leader, uh, which is the first time we've seen, I mean, there's been a lot of unrest in the UCP caucus for the past year. I mean, I've been talking to MLAs and, and talking to folks around the UCP, and, and there's been a lot of unease and a lot of unhappiness with the direction of the government, the un- unhappiness with Premier Kenney's 
leadership. Uh, but this was the, was the first time that we had a UCPMLA openly calling for Premier Kenny to resign. Um, Lowen was echoed in his call by Bonneville, Cold Lake, St. Paul MLA, David Hansen, who posted on Facebook that he agreed with Lowen. Um, but that was kind of the last we heard publicly of, of David Hansen. Um, he's still in the UCP caucus because the next day uh, there was a seven or eight hour caucus meeting where um, MLAs voted to uh, banish, to expel Drew Bar or Todd Lowen uh, and Drew Barnes, who's been outspoken for probably about two years against the, you know, criticize, critic, openly criticizing the government, um, expelling them both from the, from the UCP caucus. And then we didn't hear anything about David Hansen. So, I mean, I guess uh, diving right into it, um, what, what did you guys think about the letter, Todd Lowen's letter, um, you know, his criticisms of Jason Kenney's leadership, the timing of it. I mean, it was a kind of a weird letter posted on Facebook at about 11.52 p.m., the you know the more the night before a caucus meeting was supposed to happen, um, Chris, what what do you make of uh, what do you make of this and what's what's going on in the UCP caucus right now? Uh, I mean, I think that the certainly MLAs that are unhappy with the direction of the government feel more emboldened, obviously, to take steps to make that clear publicly. Um, and but I think this is a you know like this is not the first sign. This is not the ma first major public sign that there's real problems with the with the people's how people feel the direction of this government is going or the what MLAs think of the direction of this government and but I do think it's a bit odd how open they're being about it just two and a bit years in we're like two years 28 days into the into the this current government and and you know like for the last six months it's been a steady sense of rising unrest so uh, yeah i uh i i don't know if todd lowen you know i don't know if he's that sad that he got booted out of the ucp caucus well you i mean you got to think that he, i mean he knew what was coming i mean you can't call for a, a your party leader to resign and then and then just expect everything to just kind of blow over i mean i i, I fully expect that lowen 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 knew what he was knew what he was doing and fully expected there there to be consequences. I mean, whether he expected it to be to kind of roll out the way it did, and whether he expected it to be joined by Drew Barnes, who was kind of like, uh, you know, someone who'd been kicking kicking uh, kicking the tire around for two years since he um, was looked over uh, for a cabinet appointment back in 2019. He's kind of been the kind of the unofficial conservative opposition inside the legislature from inside the UCP caucus, but he'd been kind of the uh, you know, the, the relief valve, the steam valve of, uh, you know, frustration within the caucus. Here was this one MLA who's, you know, th third term, you know, former Wild Rose MLA who was kind of speaking out on, on, uh, on weird issues like climate change denial and criticizing the government's COVID restrictions and, 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 but the budget and whatnot. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, I guess the question, I mean, the question is, is this, is this, uh, you know what? What does this solve in terms of 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 how they've been, how they've been kicked out? I don't know. What what do you make of this, Danny? <laughs> it is um, it is like the uh, the the unite the right the tenuous ties are obviously crumbling. Um, there's, I mean, 
Lowen's letter, what we have to take a moment to appreciate is during the third wave, when Alberta is among one of the worst in the country, um, actually, I think even edging into the worst in the world for infections per capita, um, the primary opposition within Kenny's party is that he's locking it down, like he's locking down the province, and they, that's what they're mad about. So uh, it's um, it's not... Like they're talking about um, not being happy with his pandemic response, but what they mean is the restrictions. Like they don't want to have any restrictions. They're just like, open this up, like free Alberta. Um, and so this is, I, I just have, I have some affection for the Wild Rose Party. Like they're just wacky all the time. They're always going to take the wackiest viewpoint and just throw it out there. It's like, I mean, we haven't, we haven't yet broached like fire, but like it is coming. <laughs> Um, the the letter was just full of these like beautiful bon mots, like um, the government's response to a hostile federal government has been perceived as weak and ineffective. And it's like, what, what are you talking about? Like Jason Kenney's favorite thing to do. And, and the best thing for him to do politically is to like throw stones at Trudeau. Like if he does that 24 seven, the better he pulls, he certainly... I never I don't think he ever thought he was going to have to face like an accusation that he was too nice to Justin Trudeau. Well, I think that that's a good point you made in terms of like where the criticism is coming from inside the public criticism is coming from inside the UCP because like Lowen's letter talked about I mean it talked about the fight with the physicians it talked about um, the uh, the government's plans to open up open pit coal mining in the Rockies with that, that basically been pushed forward until a certain point with no consult, no public consultation. Um, like a lot of these issues, like have been around for uh, for uh, for a while. Like this, I mean, notably, like Lowen and Barnes both signed the COVID letter, the COVID eighteen letter, the COVID I think it was COVID seventeen, and then there was another MLA who talked about it, but um, basically calling for the government to lift restrictions back in early April. Um, but like a lot of these issues have been like that he mentioned in the letter and that, and that have been kind of percolating and making MLAs unhappy have been happening like since, I mean, since the beginning of, co of, of the pandemic, but even before that, like I'm talking about, you know, issues around education, fights with teachers, fights with nurses, the fights with doctors, the fights with municipalities. Like it's kind of this thing that has been growing. And I, I mean, I remember talking to MLAs before the pandemic started and they were uneasy and unhappy with how things were going because they were hearing from their constituents who were unhappy with how, how the government was approaching things. And I mean, maybe if there hadn't been a pandemic, maybe, you know, we would be, we'd obviously be in a different place in terms of the government's political schedule in terms of what they wanted to implement. But, but I find it interesting that it's like the ones who, the, the MLAs who are speaking out are, you know, they definitely seem to be coming from the, the right wing, the wild rose ring, wild, wild, ugh, wild rose wing of the of the United Conservative Party. They're coming from rural Alberta. Um, but when you look at the polling um, at the same time, I mean, people in the urban areas are just as or if not even more unhappy with with Premier Jason Kenney and with the with the UCP to the point where they're voting NDP, or at least the polls are showing they're voting NDP. But you're not hearing those kind of like, I, mean, I don't necessarily want to call them moderate because I don't think they're, they're all moderate, but the more urban MLAs, the urban UCP MLAs from Calgary, for example, or from uh, from Lethbridge or, or Red Deer, or I mean, some of them are speaking out against the, the restrictions um, or the, the supposed lockdowns. But I mean, why do you think we're not hearing from from the urban kind of, or the more progressive conservative side of the, of the, of the, of the, uh, 
of the UCP, Chris, on this? Um, or have they just left the UCP? I think they, <laughs> I think they've largely left the UCP. I think that the I think that the I think that when the UCP and PC or sorry the Wild Rose and the PC party merged, I think that was an invitation for a lot of those more uh, progressive-minded conservatives to to take a walk and go be the executive director of whatever thing that they were connected to. Um, and cause I, you know, I mean, so many of the, of the, of the UCP, uh, urban MLAs are either brand new, um, and, and a lot of them kind of fit within the, the Jason Kenney style of, of conservatism. And, and if they don't fit within that style, their style, they fit within Jason Kenney's style of, if you don't fit my style, then please shut up. I think that the point you made earlier about the all these fights with doctors and teachers and municipalities, I think those are fine, uh, and I think that and, and the federal government, and I think that's all fine as long as you win some of those fights. And I don't think any of those. I don't think they've won any of those fights. Maybe they haven't lost all of them, uh, but they. But certainly they. You know they've picked you. If you're going to pick a whole bunch of fights. You got to have prizes to show for them at some point. Now, like the criticism to that that point I just made will be that well, the pandemic got in the way of it, and but like this government was full steam ahead on governing at the at the very like has been full steam ahead on all kinds of different governing. You know, there's you know they have basically pretended like the pandemic didn't exist, and in some cases, I think they've used the pandemic as cover to push through some policies that you know i didn't think were were that uh were that great municipal finance or municipal campaign finance is a very good example i think as much and as much as they like of course they pass the bill but people are you know like you, you can't talk to a municipal candidate without them telling you that they think it's the worst thing ever uh, and it's screwed things up so badly and it's like you know people are talking about packs and dark money uh, so, you know, it's just, yeah, you take on all these fights and then you don't win anything. So, you know, the government doesn't have a whole lot to show for its first two years. Yeah. I, th I think, um, when we had, uh, Andrew Leach on the podcast a few months ago, we talked about how, I mean, it might've been when we had him on the, I think it was when we had him on the podcast a few, a few weeks, a few months ago, uh, we talked about how, you know, the UCP's key, you know, their key promises from the last election, you know, they're, they, they honed in so well in terms of their, their messaging into where Albert, where a lot of Albertans were in 2019 was the, you know, the jobs economy pipeline mantra. And a lot of Albertans were there and they, and that appealed to them. And because of the pandemic, because of the reality of economics and the reality of the world market of oil, like they haven't been able to, to really deliver on, really deliver effectively on, on any of that. And I wonder, I was talking with, um, or I, I got a message from a former, um, I guess I'd say conservative type um, around town, a prominent conservative who was talking, who reflected on one of the, one of the challenges that the UCP has is the, the the debate or the or the, the disagreement between conservatives and I mean not just conservatives but Albertans in terms of what he would describe as the new economy versus the old economy. So, you know, the UCP promise, which was you know between the lines, which wasn't between the lines, it was right right in your face. Was we, we were gonna we're gonna bring back the 
the glory days. We're going to bring back, you know, the 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 booming economy, which no government can really do, or is really really in the, really has the power to do. Um, and then there's the group, you know, group of Albertans who are looking, you know, looking forward or looking to something new to start and making the recognition that, you know, maybe we can't depend on on the next oil boom to come back to uh, to guide where Alberta is. And I mean, we've we've talked about this on the podcast before about how there's a real like for Alberta. I mean, oil is part of our it's a, it's it's a key part of our culture in the in this in this province. We talk about it. We, a lot of people self-identify with the oil industry. I mean, the Edmonton Oilers. I mean, really, like our professional sports team, professional hockey team in Edmonton is named after the named after the industry. So, and but but we haven't necessarily reached the point where we can where a lot of Albertans can recognize that you know oil has done us well in the past. We've, you know, we've, a lot of people have done really well. We've built a province, we've built schools and hospitals and roads and infrastructure, um, you know, and, and, and great universities and colleges and technical institutes, you know, in a large part, because we had those, we had those royalties coming in, we had that money coming in. Um, so while oil may have, you know, may have done us really well, done, we've done, done, done really well for us in the past. It may not be the future. It may not be where, where Alberta is going to be in 20 or 30 years. And there seems to be a real, tension uh tension with 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 that uh that element and and i like i look at the the ucp and i see that you know the urban rural divide i see the pc uc or wild rose divide i see the covid you know restrictions anti-restrictions divide and i i mean and and there's it's it's so it's so multi-layered i think it just talks about kind of the general state and kind of dysfunction of conservative politics in Alberta right now, which makes it, which is, you know, making it kind of difficult for, for any conservative party to really govern that kind of big tent coalition doesn't really exist. And, and the UCP was never really meant to be the same kind of big tent coalition that the PC party was. No, but like the, the central premise of this government, when they were trying, when they were in the, in the middle of an election was that they were going to be competent where everyone else was incompetent, right? The NDP were, uh, you know, so socialist and so bent on changing Alberta into some kind of socialist paradise and they were incompetent at doing it. And, you know, we're going to bring common sense, common, you know, good business practice to, to government. And we're going to, but like at the end of the day, we're going to actually get things done like a bunch of competent adults. And that's just not borne out. Like the, the, whether and, and I mean I don't want to. No one has had a great COVID response outside of maybe the Atlantic provinces, um, and uh, and even Nova Scotia, who's by and large doing everything that it can to control things in a and and actually like making some sacrifices and enforcing some rules, is having a hard time with variants. But but like at no point should. At no point should a, a government full of incredibly competent people allowed us to be the worst COVID jurisdiction on the continent. Like that's not a ringing endorsement of competence. That's not a ringing endorsement that leadership at the, at the government level ha, er, has reached, you know, it's, it's a, a record high. You know, this is a government that people 
that people on the left no longer listen to, I guess if you want to break it down into, into like left and right terms, that people on the left no longer listen to and a huge portion of people on the right no longer listen to. I don't even know who's supporting the government. Like you, it's, it's very hard to articulate what the, what the coalition of people that when you ask on a poll, do you support this government? Like what does that 18% of people look like? Well, even I, some even some of the government's own MLAs at this point, like uh, you know, aside from the two who've been kicked out, I mean, yeah. they they weren't the only ones. They may not be the others might not be speaking out vocally, but I mean, there is there is a lot of division internally right now. I think the people that when they answer polls about when they whether they support the government or not are like the twelve part of it is the twelve percent of people that will say I support the government no matter who the government is. Mm-hmm. Right. Like if the, whether it's Rachel Notley or whether it's Jason Kenney or whether it's Doug Ford or whether it's whoever, but like that's, it's, it's a, I think, I think it's a very dire situation. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that, I mean, Danny, I mean, you know, let me, the, I mean, it seems like that, you know, that Kenny made a statement. I mean, even though he kind of denied, uh, very strangely denied, um, trying to influence the vote in the caucus, um, which I mean, obviously he was by him is just very, his presence being there and, and, uh, and, you know, the, 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 the calls for the calls for his resignation from these, from, from the one, one of the two MLAs who were kicked out. Um, uh, I mean, he's, um, he's, uh, 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 nothing, nothing, two of his critics in the caucus are gone. Uh, are, are now, now they're, you know, out sitting outside the caucus and they have the ability to, to, uh, you know, say say whatever they want now. I mean, I don't necessarily think Drew Barnes ever had uh, had a problem saying what was on the top of his mind anyway. Um, but a lot of the problems that, I mean, that we've talked about that, that Chris elaborated on are still there. Like, I mean, getting rid of Drew Barnes, kicking out Drew Barnes and Todd Lowen didn't change, d- doesn't change the problems facing the UCP caucus. And I mean, a lot of those problems seem to revolve around, I mean, obviously there's, there's, cultural problems and challenges within the party, but a lot of the problems seem to revolve around Jason Kenney himself and his leadership. Um, like, do you think getting into these two MLAs is going to like, do you think the, the uh, like, do you think more is more, more is coming? Like how, how, how does he fix this? I mean, that's the thing. Like, I mean, I, I'm not sure he can fix it. I think Dwayne Bratt called the UCP party, like basically ungovernable, which uh, it, it may be true. I mean, there, there's this tension between wanting to form power and being united being the best and easiest way to make sure that you remain in power, um, you know, which is sort of like hearkening back to the old PC days uh, with the reality that like there's this growing, there's this contingent of rural Albertans that don't like government very much. They mostly want to be in government to stop government from doing anything that's a that's a very complicated and they you know there's growing tension between the rural and urban divide in alberta as well there's different viewpoints i mean i think somewhere in the midst of all this there was people talking about uh, not even just alberta separatism but like separating from the cities i don't know like just like kicking us out like in edmonton we're just like kicked out of the province somehow uh, so I, I don't think that's a very easy thing for Jason Kenney to solve um, in the middle of a pandemic where he's he's having to do restrictions in order to stop from, like he's saying, overwhelming our healthcare system. We're not even talking about, you know, uh, business and, and whether or not businesses can stay open or closed. Like we're talking about like institutions in our society 
if the um, uh, pandemic was to go unfettered, collapsing. I mean, look at India. Uh, so when you're dealing with sort of like, this is the reality, but the people who are mad at you are not participating in your version of reality. <laughs> what, what do you do with that? You, like he's, you have to feel for him a little bit um, because he's really between a rock and a hard place. I, I'm not sure what he could do. He could continue to kick people out. He's, as Chris said, he's a very brash leader. He picks, like, he didn't just have, like, a fight on two fronts. It was, like, I'm going to come out and just, like, scattershot fight with everybody. I'm fighting with the doctors, the nurses. I'm fighting with rural Alberta. I'm fighting with the cities. Um, uh, you know, you put in your really combative MLAs into municipal affairs to the point that it became ridiculous and the cities wouldn't deal with Madhu anymore. And then you put him into justice. Um, it, it's just... It's like a perpetual train wreck right now. And it seemed like the point where, I mean, because the, I mean, because Kenny and the UCP had picked so many fights before the pandemic and even going through the pandemic, like at a point where Alberta, where, you know, where, where, where the, the premier of Alberta, regardless of who they are, the leader of the province should be calling for unity, should be calling for, we need to all get through this together. And there was no, like, there were all these potential allies that in normal circumstances might have, you know, might have backed the government or, or seen, seen, been seen as supporting the government in terms of trying to get the province through this. But by that point, there was like, there was no goodwill, there was no trust. And it just continued to build over the course, over the course of the pandemic as well, because they kept on picking, kept on picking these fights, especially with doctors. Right. And I look at like, uh, I mean, you know, there's one, one of the, one of the responses I've heard from some conservatives is that, you know, well, you know, it's a tough time. The economy is bad. The pandemic is bad, but you look over, over, you know, east of us to Saskatchewan. And I mean, the pandemic is bad in Saskatchewan. The economy is not great in Saskatchewan. They're also, you know, quite, quite, quite a bit dependent on, on oil and gas, just like Alberta is for just kind of the main, one of the main drivers, of the economy. Uh, and, Scott Moe and the Saskatchewan party were reelected with a huge majority um, only a couple months ago, or it was, would, would have been, would have been last summer. I think um, you look to the West of us and John Horgan, the NDP premier of, of British Columbia was reelected with a huge majority. I think the end just last year, I think the NDP got the biggest majority they've ever had in British Columbia history. And they were, you know, they broke through and, and elected MLAs in some very conservative places like Abbotsford and Chilliwack that are traditionally are, you know, very strong conservative voting. So it's, it's not necessarily, I don't really buy the argument that it's the, you know, it's the, it's just the economy and it's just the, it's just uh, the pandemic. That's, that's kind of the, the, the source of, of Kenny's problems, which seems to be what he's, you know, one, one of, one of the talking points that I hear. Um, I mean, there's something a lot deeper than this and it's, I mean, it's how the government has conducted itself. It's the tone that's been set. It's, uh, it's Kenny's leadership. And I, I mean, I guess, you know, going back to what Chris was saying is, you know, who exactly, who exactly is, you know, the UCP's base of supporters right now in those polls. And I mean, I, you hear, uh, you know, the, the, the Western standard, Derek Fildebrandt's website has been, you know, they've been leaking, you know, there's, they, they, they have, they have sources in the UCP caucus who were, I mean, who were live tweeting the caucus meeting, mm, um, that, uh, uh, this week, which was, which was wild. Um, you know, but, the, but, but this is, is there's this constant, constant leak cost, constant steady stream of leaks that must just be driving the premier's office. Absolutely nuts. Um, that they, uh, they, they can't, they can't seem to plug it, but you had Kenny in, in, in a allegedly in a caucus meeting a few weeks ago, talking, you know, talking about how he wanted a new base. And I don't really know, totally know what the context of, of that was. Um, but, but, it, but I mean, it really, um, 
yeah, it's it's. Uh, I think things are are quite uh, quite scattershot for for Jason Kenny right now. So, I think that I think what's becoming relatively clear, and I said this uh, on Twitter, and I think you reported on it, or you quoted me on the on the blog, Dave, is that I think it's what's becoming clear is that I think Jason Kenny is probably an exceptionally talented political operative. You know, as a chief of staff or as the leader of a, or like a, or like a minister level leader. And it's, and it's probably a very important, would be a very important contributor around a cabinet table. But, you know, when you're the leader of the governing party and you're actually, you know, responsible for not only setting the direction of the policy, but being the chief implementer of those policies. This is just an area where I don't think his, I think his political instincts um, really chip away at his ability to, to deliver on those things. And I think part of it is because the political instincts um, are not, don't allow, like they get in the way of the discipline required that like say Stephen Harper had. Stephen Harper was very disciplined as a as a as a governing prime minister, and you know we look back on Stephen Harper's time as prime minister, and he was very good at incrementally making change. And you know, he, obviously, he had you know, he made comments about the liberals, and but he, you know, you know, he didn't make he didn't call everybody that opposed him a socialist, right? Like like Stephen Harper knew how to play the game at a leadership level that could keep things on track. Uh, and he wasn't constantly picking a fight every 15 minutes. And I think that, and being the premier of Alberta is a great prize in Canadian politics. I, you know, like if you don't, if you can't be prime minister of Canada, or if you want to be prime minister of Canada, being a prime minister or being premier of Alberta is not a bad way to, to theoretically get there. I don't know. I don't know if anybody actually ever has, but in theory, you, you know, you're, you lead the, the conservative beachhead in, in Alberta, and then you can become the, the, the big conservative in the country. And so I can understand why Jason Kenney really would have wanted to do this, but I just don't think that it's worked out. I think that, I think some people just get to the big chair and they just don't do that well. And it's not like, it's not even, I'm not even, you know, it's not, it's not even a, a swipe at his character or anything like that. It's just some people, some people are great lieutenants and can't be captain. That's, that's the way that it works. So I think that's probably where we are today. I, um, because the, you know, he started on a high and maintained it for a little bit. And then the moment we hit resistance with the government, things started to slide. And this government, particularly the premier, has been totally on the ropes since people took flights to Hawaii. Uh, th that's just not something they're ever going to recover from. You Like, that was a massive crisis for the government, and they followed that up with becoming the worst COVID jurisdiction in North America. Six months later, or five months later, whatever it was. But it, it's just, it's not... You know, the, the action being taken today is action, I think, being taken out of force. Um, it's just they couldn't not to do anything. 
Whereas before they went and actively didn't do something. It's, I don't know. I, I think, I just, I just don't think he has the mod. I just don't think that Jason Kenny has the moderating influence within himself in order to actually be an effective premier anymore. And the, if there were uh, more, um, uh, if there were a set of more experienced MLAs in the UCP uh, caucus, we would not be having this conversation because the one thing people say about whether Jason Kenny is going to be is going to resign as premier is who would replace him, and with a largely inexperienced caucus bench, that's a legitimate question. But if there were like three or four really experienced MLAs. And I think some of them are up and coming now. Like there's a few MLAs that, you know, I think people are starting to think like, oh, well, maybe they'd be good to the election. So who 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 do you think that would be? Who 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 would? I mean, you know, who 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 would replace Jason Kenny if he if he resigned on an I mean, interim on an interim basis? Or yeah, on, I think or both both. <laughs> I think who, who who would be the premier? Who would be the be the UCP leader going into the next election in 2023? Oh, I have no idea, but. You know, there's a list of, you know, like the, look at the top six. Uh, I think the top six uh, ministers minus the Minister of Health, I think, are reasonable candidates. Okay. Maybe there's somebody outside. Mm-hmm. I don't know. So I guess I've, maybe yeah. Nathan Cooper. Like, I don't know if that would be like somebody with a like, I mean, he's he's been able to take that more measured approach uh, because of his position as the speaker where he may not be perceived as, as partisan compared to the other people, like people love centrism in Alberta. They love conservatism and then they love centrism. It's like their second love. So I think if anybody that could like convince uh, the public that they were this conservative framework, so like we're not scary socialists, but like we're not gonna we're not gonna be out there saying the things that like get us in the Globe and Mail and make us look like ridiculous hicks to the rest of the country. Like that's that's like what Alberta wants. It, it sounds like you're tra- you're talking about what the Alberta Party wants to be, Danny. Yeah, I mean the Alberta Party <laughs> thinks that it's that for sure. Uh, they don't seem to do a very good job. You probably have a lot, like, <laughs> is there a lot of Alberta party listeners. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no that's Alberta okay. Party. That's okay. We like to give them a shout out on the. Uh, they, 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 they. You know, they don't have an MLA right now, but we like to give them a shout out because we have friends. Uh, we have a lot of friends in the Alberta party who are listeners to this. Uh, listeners yeah. to this pod. Well, I look forward to hearing from them on Twitter. Yeah. Um. So I mean, so we've talked about we've talked about the MLAs being expelled we've talked about challenges to kenny's leadership the kind of the state of conservative politics in alberta um then there's the the other side which is actually i mean according to you know a lot of polls i mean take polls with a grain of salt they're snapshot things change people change their mind but um things have been very good for rachel notley and the new democrats in the polls um i think the last time the the last time the ucp pulled ahead of the ndp was last november um so it's, you know, in, and we've had quite a few, I mean, an, an unusually, unusual number, unusual amount of public opinion polls that have been released. Um, we've seen the NDP dominate in p- political party fundraising, which I think we talked about in our last episode, which, I mean, the NDP raised more than a million dollars in the first three months of 2021, but then the UCP raised half, about just uh, just around half of that with, with 500,000, and the NDP raised more in the, in the final 
final quarter of 2020 as well. So, um, I mean, it seems that like, you know, despite the results of the, you know, the 2019 election and despite the kind of traditional, um, uh, traditional, um, uh, fate of opposition parties in Alberta politics, where you know you where, where you lose one election and you kind of fade into obscurity or fade into opposition. It doesn't seem like, at least until now, that the that the NDP have uh, have faded. I mean, they're doing they're doing quite well, and and I mean, we still have two years until the next election. Um, so a lot you know a lot can happen between now and then. I mean, presumably, you know, God willing, God hope hopefully we won't be in, we won't we won't be in in the pandemic when the next election in twenty twenty three is called. Um, but what do you what do you think this? I mean, in terms of the opportunities that are that are presented to Rachel Notley and the NDP, what what do you think, Chris? In terms of, you know, are they t- are they doing a good job taking advantage of it right now, and, and how do they how do they sustain that? Yeah, you know, I think they're doing it right now. I think I feel, and you know, maybe this is just maybe my perspective because I maybe started paying closer attention a couple months ago, but I feel like they've done a much better job of being you know, disciplined about their communications um, and not taking, not taking every piece of bait out there really, you know, and figuring out when they need to use Rachel and when they need to use other MLAs and, Mm -hmm. and, and really figuring out, making sure that they're hitting the right targets and, and, um, and, you know, calling for fundraising and calling for election preparedness at the right moment. I mean, I remember long ago when the function of the NDP used to be the, the, the party that would call for your resignation. If you did any battle, this is when they, when they went with this, like before they were government, is there talking about? I think maybe it was before they were government, but I think I, but even, even when the, even following the, the election, I think they were mm-hmm. too, uh, you know, I think th- they were too scattered in, in their communications. I think they've really tightened that up now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think especially, you know, I don't think that they're taking this moment where people see them as, as a potential governing, uh, like a real option for, for, for governing. I don't think they're taking that for granted at all. I think they're being really strategic. Um, so I think they're, and I think they also understand that people can swing back to being okay with the UC. Those those casual UPC voters can swing back pretty easily um, if they, you know, the, you know, if I were if I were the UCP, my, my what I would be trying to do is I would try to make voting conservative the kind of default vote in Alberta again, which I don't think that it is right now. I think right now. If you're going to go and vote conservative uh, for the UCP conservatives, you got to think about it. And I don't think they want you to think about it. I think they want you to just say, okay, I'm just going to vote conservative right now. I think people are thinking about it. And I think the NDP know that. And I think the NDP are playing to that. And they look good. They look smart. They look reasonable. And more importantly than anything else, they look disciplined. Yeah, that's a, the dis- discipline is 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 uh, is a good point. I really felt after the, I mean, I agree with you. I really felt after the 2019 election, like for the about the first like six months to a year, they were, you know, the, you know, they were getting used to being opposition again. Even though I think some, you know, there's some NDP MLAs who are really, you know, they thrive in the opposition, but but they were used to for the most part they were used to being in government um for for four years i mean most of them were most of them were had only been government only been government mlas because most of them were elected in 2015 but but i've really felt that they've really 
tighten their messaging, especially around uh, and, and shown quite a bit of discipline around their messaging, um, especially when it comes to ca around Calgary. And they are really like, I mean, Calgary, you know, is going to be the battleground in the next election. If the NDP are going to form government in 2023, they need to win seats in Calgary. And you can't go, you know, you can't go a day, almost, almost, you almost can't go a day on uh, without seeing a, uh, a social video or a photo or a backdrop of something, you know, of downtown Calgary or something in Calgary with, with, with Rachel Notley. Uh, they're, you know, they're, I, I think at this point, Rachel Notley is probably, uh, you know, you know, uh, uh, pretty close to becoming a full, a full time resident, a full time resident of Calgary because they're spending so much time down there, which is exactly where they need to be um, because they need to win. They need to win those seats in Calgary if they're going to win in, in the next election. Um, any thoughts, Danny? Yeah, um, I don't know if it's really owing. Yes, I have seen some tightening of the messaging um, of the NDP, especially, as you mentioned, from that transition from government to opposition. Um, but the NDP also, like, if you think about how they ran their election, like, they, they thrive on being the underdog. So um, when they can take the position of against what the government is standing for, uh, which they have done consistently, um, and it starts working because other people aren't happy with what the government's doing. It's sort of just like a confluence of the way that the NDP communicates and where the public is moving to rather than like genius political strategy to my mind. And and it really shows how much the mold is broken in Alberta politics. I mean, we went 43 years with one, you know, the progressive conservative party as government, which, I mean, the PC party was a conservative party, but it was very much a big tent conservative party. So there were it was, it was a, you know, there were liberals, there were conservatives. It was, like were, a, it was just like a governing party. Like yeah, I, I, I used to describe I it as a... a I don't know if I call it a big tent party as much yeah. as a do anything party. Yeah, it was an, yeah. I, I used to call it an amorphous, politi amorphous political blob, right? Like it would really yeah, just, you, you know, I mean, you had such a different, like you had, you know, they're leading you from Peter Lockheed to Ralph Klein. I mean, they're two extremely different people. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, you had... Ted Morton and Dave Hancock and Robin Campbell in the same, you know, in the same caucus at certain, you know, at certain points as, as finance minister or whatever at, at certain points. So, you know, people who would be, uh, you know, really in other provinces, in, in especially in Prairie, Pro the Prairie provinces might be new Democrats or liberals would be progressive conservatives because it was how you would, how you would govern. How you, yeah, that's how you got into government. In yeah. And you just, I, I mean, I, I don't think that's the, I think Albertans have very much moved away from that right now. And I think we've seen that, seen that over the past few years, whether, you know, I'm not going to say it's not going to, you know, the conservatives aren't going to win elections in the future because they will, because there's, there's a lot of conservatives in Alberta. But um, I mean, think right now, I mean, looking ahead to 2023, it's, it's, uh, I mean, everything's kind of, kind of, kind of up in the air. Um, I just wanted to say about the, the NDP and, um, just kind of share, share a story and pe people will, will remember this um, when they were a tiny opposition party. So before the 2015 election, when they, when they formed government and won an additional 50 seats. Um, well, no, I used to work for the liberals back in the 2000s. I worked for the Alberta liberal party and did some work for the caucus when they were the official opposition and the NDP were like the most frustrating group, uh, like frustrating opponents ever because they would just, they, they, they really punched above their weight in terms of, you know the the amount of media attention they 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 were able to get. Um, you know, I mean, being a kind being a, a tiny two party caucus or four MLA caucus, probably two MLA caucus or four MLA caucus that, you know, at that point didn't really have any expectations at all that they were going to form government. Um, you know, you can you can act a certain way or you know do things in a in a certain way that uh, that that is uh, 
that you, you can get away with stuff and say stuff that, that you don't actually have to have to implement. And I mean, the, you know, the liberals were always trying to be the next progressive conservatives in a lot of ways. Um, so they were trying to act like that, whereas the NDP would, would be able to get out there and really punch hard and, and run, you know, just run circles around, around the liberal opposition. And it was always incredibly frustrating. So it's, it's, it'd been very interesting to watch that transformation. Hello, I'm Elizabeth Bonkink. I'm Andrew Paul. And we're the hosts of the Well Endowed Podcast. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation, or ECF as we call it. ECF provides grants to charities through the endowment funds we create and manage with our donors. Hence the title of our show, The Well Endowed Podcast. Every month, we bring you a collection of stories and interviews with fascinating guests who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. Through these stories, we look at the space where endowments intersect with your communities. So if you're interested in the people and issues impacting your community, check out thewellendowedpodcast.com. This episode of the Dave Berta Podcast is also brought to you by Writing Is Your Nature, a live online masterclass for nature, environment, and outdoor writers created by Pandemic University and the Yellowstone to Yukon Conservation Initiative. Running May 11th to 25th, Writing Is Your Nature was designed to sharpen your nonfiction writing through the lens of ecology and conservation. It's free and open to the public to learn from guest professors like Chris Turner, a best-selling author and leading voice on the climate crisis, and Sarah Gilman, an MIT Knight Science Journalism Fellow, who will break down how to pitch and get paid to write science and nature stories. You can register for the Masterclass Series at PandemicUniversity.com. And in case you're wondering what the heck is Pandemic University, it's an Alberta-made virtual writing school on a mission to dull the impact of COVID-19 for professional and emerging writers alike. Since April 2020, over 1,500 students have attended from 25 different countries. Writing is Your Nature is the first free course by Pandemic University, Join in starting May 11th, and if you can't attend live, no worries. Registered students can watch each Masterclass video replay at a later time. Head to PandemicUniversity.com to register now. We have an election that's closer than, I mean, we've been talking about the 2023 election, I mean, the provincial election, but we have an election that is much closer um, than that one that's coming up in October of 2021. October of this year, holy smokes, time flies. Um, so I wanted to talk with you guys, shift gears a little bit to municipal politics and talk about the municipal election here in Edmonton. Um, now, Danny, you do a lot of, you've done a lot of, do a lot of writing and you focus really, really, uh, really closely on the municipal election. Um, we've had, uh, a, a, quite a few developments in the, I mean, in the mayoral race, in city council races, municipal election in the past couple of weeks. Um, I mean, what we had one candidate enter the end of the race this week, Michael Oshry, former city councillor. Um, what do you think about um, how Oshry kind of uh, 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 his end, entry into the race impacts the uh, impacts the uh, the mayoral election in Edmonton? Hmm. It's still very very early in the process. Like you know, when we talked about it before, it was early. Now yeah. people are just starting to tune in a little bit. So he's. You know, his timing is not bad. He was definitely a rumored candidate anyway. So mm-hmm. he, I think it was May 12th that he filed his papers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's a he's a small business owner. I'm, oh, no, no, he's a big business owner at this point. <laughs> um, but he's, um, you know, he's got that kind of like business savvy political perspective, um, 
which is very appealing to people. People love it. Like that's the answer to everything, right? It's like put a businessman in charge of it. Um, <laughs> uh, so he's, he's an interesting foil to Nickel, um, who is, I guess, also thinks that. Uh, very like No one has really differentiated themselves in the... Um, in the campaign yet, uh, because not everybody is declared. Of course, we have Sohi. Uh, there was a really weird piece in the Hill Times coming out of Ottawa about Sohi's race. Um, this is for former city councillor and former, former member councilor. of parliament and, and federal cabinet minister Amarjeet Sohi. I'm just like, you should know this. If you're yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Yes, I'm, I'm sure most of our listeners do, but, you know, for the odd <laughs> no, no, one who you're... doesn't. You're right. That's fair. Um, so he's that will be a big candidate. And and I think the candidates who want to align themselves with progressive values will be chasing Sohi, which is sort of an it may be a good time to actually start refining your policy before you have to deal with somebody who has that sort of like uh, political status. But they're not. Um, it's uh I keep like waiting. I'm like, let's get, let's get, let's get interesting here. How do we get down to this, uh, this winnowing of like what each candidate stands for? Um, so we have other candidates in the race, right? Um, oh yeah, we got, I mean, like, Don, no, Don Iveson, who's the two-term incumbent mayor of Edmonton, is not running for re-election, so it's an open, an open field right now. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the other candidates, Danny? Like, what, what's, mm -hmm. is there anything notable going on right now? Like, I mean, because it's still early, right? It's, it's May. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, kind of a strange time to be a candidate and be running a political campaign during a pandemic. Um, and you know, there are some candidates out there, but is, is there anybody who sticks out like so far other, other than, I mean, as you said, so he who's rumored to be rumored to be coming into the race. Well, there was this um, uh, very informal Twitter poll by Edify Edmonton, which had, I think, people holding 30% of the respondents were holding out for Sohi. So not a great sign for you as a candidate when the potential of somebody else is polling at, like, triple your numbers. Now, of course, that's not. Chris yeah. is, like, making a face because he's just like, this is this is just a Twitter poll. An internet poll. <laughs> but um, I, I think it, it reflects probably people's name recognition. You know, we have Kim Krishnow. Um, who was a candidate um, before stepping down. Um, Cheryl Watson, she she did make a few waves with her free parking discussion downtown. Uh, that was a, more than a month ago now. Um, but we also still can't have candidates door knocking. And that's, that's when you come to the mayor position, how are you going to get to know your entire city or build name recognition outside of your ward uh, if you've run previously? If you can't even go around to talk to people. So it's, uh, it's really, it's getting a little, uh, as a, as a journalist, it's not that fun to cover this yet. I'm just like, can you start yeah. to differentiate yourself or say something like interesting or, uh, you know, maybe we need to even move to an online debate, um, sooner. Of course, that's just to keep the journalist's attention, which you, want. <laughs> you, should, you shouldn't do. That's not really a good political strategy. It's like making me interested in what you're doing. Um, but like you have to make all the voters interested too. And we're kind of in a gap right now where everyone's at home and bored. And so I wonder if this isn't a unique opportunity if you're a small candidate to make more of a wave than they have. Did you say that one of the candidates had stepped away? Uh, not no uh previously kim professional was on um she was in ward two. oh she was previously a city councillor yeah. and okay. then she stepped away from that position oh from politics yeah, yeah 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 okay 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 um i it's very interesting because the the 
So the field for the mayor mayoral election, we always typically like in 2013, we typically thought of the mayoral election is like three people. And then the last time we thought basically of as like just a referendum on Don Iveson. But there are 10 people registered in, in the 2017 race for mayor. And it was like Don Iveson, that guy that runs all the time, whose name escapes Don, me. Don Koziak. Don Koziak? Don Koziak. Don Koziak. Yeah. And then like eight captain last places. And then, <laughs> also right. but, but also I think there were five or six candidates in 2013. I, I think there'll be 10 candidates, 10, 15 candidates for mayor this time around. But it's very unusual to have a, a race with five, uh, you know, assuming so he, like, I'm just going to assume so he's going to run based on the, at some point, based on the Hill Times article and, um, you know, the rumors. But, mm-hmm. you know, the, you know, with, you know, Chrishell, Watson, Nickel, Oshry, and Sohi, that's five very strong candidates. Sorry, strong. Sorry, five uh, viable candidates for mayor. In any in any mayor race, they would be considered a real contender. Mm-hmm. Uh, three, five of them. Sorry, sorry, four of them have been elected to office previously, if not at least once, but in mo- in many cases more than once. The thing I would say to those candidates at this point is, someone's coming fifth. Someone's coming fourth. You come second in a mayoral race. It's like they ran a good race. This just wasn't the electorate just wasn't there for them. You come third. It's like, you know, they're a little further behind. But again, like they had a lot of business being there. They they made their made a made a point with their issues, something like that. Fourth and fifth. If you're a real career minded competitive candidate. Nobody gets into these races to come fourth or fifth. And and those and like fourth or fifth in a mayoral race might be a killer. Because that might be fourth or fifth with like five percent of the vote. Right? Like, and particularly when you're like a real name, right? You've got money and backers and like, you know. I think we we tend to think that with five relatively strong candidates that we're going to have like, you know, it's going to be twenty percent each, and then maybe one of them will break out and get twenty one and win the win the race. That's probably not how it's going to happen. One of them is probably going to be. There's probably going to be one or two candidates that's a, a real runaway candidate, and everybody else is going to get decimated. So if I'm one of those, if I'm a candidate right now, and I'm at the beginning of July. I'm going to take very close stock of where my what my numbers look like, what kind of following I've been able to build, what the really a, take a critical look at the reaction to my campaign and ask myself, do I want to carry this campaign all the way to the middle of November just so that I can come a very very far distance from first place? Right? Or do I want to take hundreds of thousands of dollars? You know, do I want to, do I want to like, do I want to on the day after election day, do I want people tweeting that I, 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 uh, I paid $130 a vote. That's like reputationally. That's, that that's a, that's something that wasn't a factor in previous elections. 
right? But it is absolutely a factor in this one. There, there, there is a chance that at the end of this race, somebody who has been elected to public office or has some real public profile, people are going to look at it and say, that person had no business being in this race. And that's not, maybe that's not fair. But if I'm one of these candidates, I've got to look at that. And I've got to really think about whether I want to, whether I want to subject myself to that. Because it's, that is going to happen to one of the, one of the, or one or two of the people I just mentioned, that's going to happen to and you think July is the point is the kind of the break point where yeah, I mean I, I mean I don't know I think if you're like if you're look if you're doing this the part of the problem is is like when you're running when you're running for council you can basically drop out whenever you want and you have a series of people to apologize to because you've you know they've given you 1200 bucks or something like that and and you just couldn't make it happen and usually people are pretty forgiving about that stuff. But if you get kind of like way deep into the election and you've spent $300,000 or you've, you've, or $220,000 and you've got nothing to show for it, you've got a lot of people who've put their own money into your campaign to, to answer to. And that's like, again, reputationally, that's very tough to, to get through. I remember when we were, you know, like the early months of the of Don's first uh, mayoral campaign, I was like, you were you were Don Iverson's campaign manager. I was, during yeah, his, I was Don Iverson's campaign manager, and I I remember thinking, kind of, two weeks after launch, a bunch of people, you know, like we launched, a bunch of people gave us money, and I remember thinking, like, how am I gonna, how like how am I like the accountability that we're going to have to the people that that put their hard earned money into our campaign, if we don't perform really well is like uh, I'm like I'm you know and maybe I was being you know maybe over dramatic or something like that which you know I would never do uh but the um but you know I thought like am I gonna like ruin this guy's reputation am I gonna ruin my own am I gonna ruin how are the volunteers gonna feel it's there's like there's like a lot of people kind of hanging on that will um you know, like it, it's not just you, right? you know, it's other people and other people's money and other people's time. And it's so, yeah. So like, again, like someone's coming fourth, someone's coming fifth. Well, and more, more candidates will lose than win, than will win. That's the other thing is that, you know, they're, they're, it's just, I guess the the point that you're raising is, you know, if you're a serious candidate and you can, you know, you have the resources to do the polling and, you know, you can see which way the wind is blowing. Do you want to, you know, you know, you, you, you can, do you, can you get out of the way if you if you if it looks like you're, you're going to lose really badly? Yeah, I mean, like, but imagine being elected to office three or four times in the past and coming fourth in this election. Yeah, I mean, do you have somebody in particular in mind looking at this list? Nope. No. Okay. I mean, a campaign uh, campaigns matter. Campaigns yeah. really, really, truly matter, and and I think any of these. You know, there. I know the, all these candidates are a little bit different. There, I know. Like, I think they, in some ways, people see them as a bit of a monolith right now because of the point you made earlier, Danielle. That uh, that there's, um, that you know, that hasn't things haven't really got going yet. But when they start to talk about themselves, they'll they'll differentiate themselves. I think, you know, um, but but like the electorate is going to gravitate to something. You know, we're not going to split the electorate five ways here. They're, they're going to gravitate to something. 
people are going to make choices about candidates they think are a little bit closer to one another. What those choices are, I I can't even begin to predict. Um, but but you know, like the but you've kind of got to you, you kind of I don't know July maybe middle of August at the latest you got to look and say, am I really in this? Um, or am I just doing something that, you know, like, and it's like, again, like I said, with the, the Kenny thing, like there's no shame in it. Like the, most people that lose elections don't lose them. Well, that's actually not a good portion of people who lose elections. Don't lose elections because they didn't try hard enough. A lot of them just lose elections because they ran an election that the people didn't want to elect them. In. I mean, it's not. It's not a real character flaw, but, you know, sticking it out in a, with a campaign that's not not gonna, not going anywhere at a, at a certain point is, you know, if all the signals are there and, and you just think like, well, maybe things will turn around for me while you've got four other people doing like competing as hard as they can. It, it's, that's a, I don't know. I mean, I, it's hard to walk away from these things. I know like the further D and you get it. Like uh, if someone had told me in 2013, you should walk. Actually people did at the very beginning before Don announced we were, people were like, you're going to get crushed. Do not do it. You're going to get crushed. And, and he should like, you know, he should wait until 2021 when, you know, after two terms or, or whatever, and uh, or and then, and there were a whole bunch of people that were, were thinking about running that time too. that field. Privately, that field was very big before mm -hmm. people started to figure out that, you know, that they, they weren't as uh, as viable as, as others. And and so I know it's very hard to walk away, but. And I, I think your point about walking away earlier is, is on, is on point. I mean, if someone, if you were a candidate and you announced last year or early this year or, or last month and, you know, things are changing and, and things don't, you know, things don't look good. You can kind of see the way the wind is blowing, dropping out now, no one's going to remember that in October. No one's going to remember that in July. Um, but if you wait until September, August to drop yeah. out. I mean, when people, when once people start paying attention, really like normal people, not us, you know, the, the kind of the weirdos who pay attention to politics, um, like then, then, like then people are gonna, you know, gonna take, gonna take notice. Um, but I mean, I don't, so I, I don't think there's any shame in, in, in dropping out now. Um, it's so interesting that like, what we're sorry, Dave, but no, what go we're ahead. defining the mayoral race as right now is like drop yeah. out. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I mean, but like it's funny. That is funny. The, the, the field's ne the field's never been this strong at the top. Yeah, and and you know, like it is, and I don't think that it is a. I don't think that it's actually as competitive as we think. I just don't know what direction it's not competitive in. Yeah, you don't know who who it's going to break for is what you mean. If there's five can yeah. five it's, strong it's, candidates, exactly. Okay. Okay, that's a good that's a good point. So we have um we're talking about campaigning. Um and we've had I don't think I don't know if we've had any mayoral candidates announce this, but we've had a number of city council candidates in Edmonton. I'm thinking Corey Longo, um, Aaron Rutherford, uh, a, num a number of others who I can't quite remember at the moment, who've uh, who've said that they're not going to they made decisions as a campaign that during the pandemic they're not going to door knock, not going to do door door to door canvassing as candidates, which is usually uh in in a normal 
um, election year is one of the biggest ways that and most effective ways the candidates uh, are able to identify vo- identify voters and reach out to voters is to go literally go door to door physically and with their, them and their volunteers and actually talk to people. Um, what do you guys think about the uh, this, their decision not to not to do door knocking and how 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 like how, how do you think the campaign will work if if candidates aren't actually going door going door to door? So I had a really interesting, like I've been talking to a lot of people about this. I talked to Chris uh, for an article about this as well um, on Rage Against the Municipal. But I also talked to Councillor uh, Andrew Neck, and he is known to be like the best door knocker. Um, he suspended his his door knocking. And his rationale for that was that more than ever before, he was hearing a lot of concern from people about mm-hmm. being at the doors. Um, so I guess candidates are pausing this so out of abundance of of like caution we don't we don't know if that would be a major factor in spread or not we have no idea um so people are just making that decision and it's a little bit of a um a virtue signaling not in a negative way but like showing like okay this is how i'm going to care for my communities i'm deciding not to do this and then a few candidates are taking it even a step further and deciding not to drop off uh, campaign literature as well so um i also spoke with um who was it here uh it was jason kosawan who was door knocking um and so he's continued that and his answer was sort of like well if people aren't comfortable they're not going to they're not going to come to the door. So I think you um, people choosing to do that could be at an advantage. Um, the people dropping off flyers, people still t- continuing door knocking, I would say are going to be at an advantage in the ward over people who've decided to pause. Because if you pause and you're having um, virtual meetings um, or, or keeping things virtually, you're, you're only going to attract, like Dave said, like people like us, like, you know, attract the weirdos that are going to like go talk to a candidate on Zoom in an hour in their evening. Like that's a, you're going to have to be interested in politics anyway. I, I can't think that I could drag like a family member who's not familiar with politics into a Zoom discussion so they can listen to like somebody they don't know talk. It just doesn't, it doesn't happen. Um but I have seen since then a few interesting things. I think one of the candidates in Edmonton, um, she had a, a virtual magic show. Uh, I've been on a panel that one of the candidates sponsored, which was kind of trying to replace like pints and politics. Uh, and then there was also a, um, a picnic. So a fundraiser was like, a, we're putting together picnic baskets and we're going to sell. We're going to, you know, sell picnic baskets. You can go have a picnic. And then it kind of gives the candidate a chance to sp- speak to people as they're coming and picking up their things. So that seems like a more effective strategy to me than sort of like just trying to rely on like us weird political nerds that will talk to you. Yeah, I know there's been a lot of like coffee meetings and tea meetings over Zoom where where candidates are, are trying kind of innovative ways to, to reach out and get people get people on, on uh, you know, ver- be able to mer- meet with people virtually in, in larger groups rather than yeah, like you said, because you can't can't meet and can't meet in large groups right now, uh, or you know, mo- a lot of people wouldn't be comfortable doing that. Um, and uh, yeah, so Chris, what do you what do you, do you have any thoughts on this as a camp- former campaign manager? Yeah, I think the I think stopping door knocking out of an abundance of caution is probably a smart idea. I think the you know the maybe even campaign lip drop. I, I'm not so sure about that, but the. I know can I know candid campaigns that have a, a few campaigns who have said they have they're going to stop door knocking but they're still delivering literature. 
Yeah, I would imagine the ones that say they're not delivering literature, are the ones that probably don't have the money to print literature. <laughs> yeah. But I think the, you know, I mean, I think right now, the next couple of weeks is obviously we're all trying our best to, you know, social distance appropriately and, um, and abide by the restrictions so that, um, so that we can get back to some level of normal um, that everybody wants to get to. But I think that uh, I think you'll see candidates pick up door knocking again. I think it's such, it's such an important and effective way to, to reach out, particularly on, in council races. I think this is probably one of the, some of, some of the council uh, candidates that I'm seeing come out. It may, I think is making this a really exciting mm-hmm. council, a potential with, with so many people re- being replaced, um, with so many councillors retiring and so many open seats, I think there's a lot of really, I think a lot of the races have a lot of choice. Yeah, uh, really good choices too. I think that I think that's I think it's a re- actually a real boon, a real boon year, not just in the mayor's race, but in the but in the a lot of the council races too. So, um, so I think, but I as a result, I think they're going those are going to be very competitive races, and I think. They're going to look for a moment when they can get back out there and do everything that they can possibly do. Uh, but, you know, you, if you keep door knocking and one of your volunteers gets COVID and people find out about it, you're, you know, all of a sudden people are going to ask, like, well, what, what kind of idiot judgment call was that? Um, and that can be, you know, in this environment, that's a real, be a real problem for your campaign. So I think it's smart to pause on the door knocking now until people feel a little bit more comfortable. I would probably wait until we allow restaurants to sort of like in-person dining to open up again, maybe after we hit a certain vaccine threshold, maybe 75, 80% or something like that. Um, I would wait or, you know, I honestly, I would just wait for a very clear signal about public health restrictions before, before knocking on doors again. But, you know, somebody came knocking on doors through our neighborhood and they, uh, I watched them do it. I watched them kind of go down the street and they knock on the door and then they would walk 12 feet away. And I think Andrew, I think I saw a tweet of him doing something similar, you know, and if people feel, I mean, people are feeling comfortable enough to still today to get their food delivered yeah, and, go out and or, or, you know, the Amazon person comes by and, you know, you'll open your door for them and, so, you know, I don't think it's necessarily, I think it'll have to be a feature of this election where people will stand a little bit further away and have a conversation with you. Um, I think that'll, that'll obviously change the tenor and tone of those conversations because there's a, you know, if you're door knocking, it's kind of an, it can be a really intense experience. It's hard to have that intense experience 12 feet from somebody. Um, but I think you'll definitely see it, uh, see it come back but for now i think it is smart to to step away i i it, and i think the can but i do think the campaign that's last to come back to door knocking will probably be at a bit of a disadvantage i actually had a federal can a federal conservative candidate in my writing door knocking and passing out literature so it was this like very nice uh, i don't know if it was a couple two people um but it was weird that was very strange thanks for the literature i'm not going to remember who this is in a few months but like good on you i guess yeah. <laughs> or i'll remember you as the person who came to my door and i was maybe, like and i was maybe. like it's either it's yeah, I haven't ordered anything. I don't have any food coming. The only they could only be the fire department. You know, like 
<laughs> oh, good. It's a federal conservative candidate. And, and, uh, great. No, you know what? Please, thank you. Go away. I was just like, what do you? I think I was a little too stunned to even have a conversation just because I was, yeah, the federal conservative candidate is the last person you expect to be knocking on your door right now. Yeah. Well, we'll have to have you guys back on and talk about the uh, the federal election, which could potentially come up during or just around the municipal election. So we could be talking yeah, about two major elections uh, uh, in uh, in Alberta coming up in uh, coming up in the fall in October, in September, October, November. Um, this has been fantastic. Uh, thanks so much. I, I really appreciate you guys taking some time out of your Sunday afternoon to come join us here uh, on the Dayberta podcast to talk about. Uh, the uh, the 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 new developments in the uh, I don't even know what to call it the Gong Show in the in the UCP caucus right now uh, and uh, and the upcoming uh, mayoral election and municipal elections. Um, thank you very much, uh, Danny Parody and Chris Henderson, uh, for joining us today. Um, you can find out more about uh, some of the stuff that Danny's working on. You can go to I think it's is it Rage Against the Municipal at dot Substack dot com. That's right. Okay, great. Check that out. I'll put a link to it on the uh, on the website. Please check it out. They got some great stuff. Sign up for the newsletter. Um, uh, you know, you can get some stuff for free. You know, become a, a subscriber through their their Substack, and you can get a lot more content. And it's and it's great stuff. I'm a um, subscriber to that, and I it is 100% worth the money. Uh, awesome. The, the content comes like Aww, you I was on the web after I paid for the subscription i was on the site and i was like oh god there's so much i'm not going to read all this <laughs> so, it, so you will like if you it, you know the i think people look at these newsletter subscriptions and they think like oh that's a lot of money for like a someone's blog but it's actually like quite a bit of content and it's well written and it's interesting and i i it's the i think it's the best the best online money i spent in uh, in early may Oh, that's great. That's great. Um, so yeah, check it out. Rage Against the Municipal. You can check uh, Chris Henderson out. He tweets about country music a lot. Um... <laughs> Sorry, that's the other Chris Henderson. Sorry. Saskatchewan uh, for... Chris Henderson. Saskatchewan Chris Henderson, uh, country music artist who's uh, who's great on Twitter and has some great music. You should check out Saskatchewan Chris Henderson. Yeah, uh, and you... Henderson Music. Uh, on Twitter, it's Henderson Music. Henderson at Henderson Music. Check it out. And you and and if you're interested in witty tweets, you should also check out uh, Alberta Chris Henderson at uh, is it Chris Henderson at uh, or at Chris Henderson? Yeah, it's just at Chris Henderson. Okay, you got on early enough to actually get your name. That's great. Yeah, that's great. Check out Chris at uh, at Chris Henderson. Um, thanks so much for listening uh, for joining us today. Thanks uh, thanks again to our producer Adam Rosenhart uh, for making the podcast sound so great. Uh, the Dayberta Podcast. We're a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. Um, send us your feedback on on social media. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram and, uh, and Facebook. Uh, you can email us at podcast at dayberta.ca uh, and feel free to leave a review. Um, we love those five star reviews at uh, on uh, Apple Music or iTunes or whatever they're calling it these days. Um, thanks so much, and we'll uh, we'll see you guys in a few weeks when I'm sure we'll have no doubt. Uh, have uh, have a ton of uh, a ton of more stuff to talk about about Alberta politics because Alberta politics never rests. Yeah.